Welcome to the Watershed Investigations, tales from the front line of the water crisis. I'm Liana Hosier and my co-host is Rachel Salvage. Every fortnight or so, we'll talk to someone experiencing water issues at the sharp end, whether that's drought, flood, pollution or other problems, and then explore the bigger picture with an expert or influencer. And we're going to do our best to find possible solutions so it's not all going to be doom and gloom. Before we dive into this, our very first episode, we want to tell you a little bit about ourselves. We've both been journalists for a good while now with several decades of experience between us. So Liana was with the BBC in international news and investigations, working across the world, covering some of the biggest stories of the time from the so-called Arab Spring to the COVID pandemic. And for my part, I've been a journalist and editor on environmental policy magazine, The Ends Report, and I've been writing in places like The Guardian, exposing polluters and holding governments to account for their actions or their inaction more often. We decided to set up our own investigations unit on water because we don't think there's enough investigative journalism and because we think water is the issue of our time and there needs to be more focus on it. We publish our investigations in the mainstream media, but in this podcast, we're going to be discussing the stories behind our investigations. Right, that's enough about us now. Let's get on with our first guest. In this episode, we're looking at sewage pollution, and unless you've been hiding under a rock for the past couple of years, you'll be well acquainted with the problem. How our waterways are awash with both treated and raw human sewage. Clearly, this is an ecological and public health nightmare. To help us understand the issue better, we're speaking to former rock and pop artist Fergal Sharkey, who has lately become a huge and intractable thorn in the side of government and the water sector. We've been covering sewage dumping in UK rivers for some time in our previous jobs, so it's an issue that's close to our hearts. Our recent investigation uncovered high levels of the bacteria E. coli in our rivers, which is from animal or human waste. It's putting a real strain on shellfish farmers who rely on clean waters to cultivate oysters and mussels, meaning they have to pay for expensive cleaning before they're put on the market to eat. The waters were so polluted that 11 production zones in Cornwall had to close in May. First, let's speak to Tom Howard from Richard Howard's Oysters, a family that has been cultivating oysters in Essex for generations. My family, the Howards, have been cultivating oysters here for a good 300 years, possibly more. I mean, our records go back to the 1700s. And so my fifth great-grandfather was growing oysters on the creeks, on the oyster beds that we own. We've got 15 acres. The thing that's changed is the quality of the water so back in those days water quality was probably really good and then it went really bad because there's a lot of sewage going into the sea and then new methods had to be created to make those oysters safe for people to eat thankfully we're not seeing like the devastation that say Whitstable have been facing or most of the south coast Cornwall's having a horrific time with it at the moment working with local authority every month we do testing of certain shellfish harvesting areas to see the levels of E. coli in the water to ensure that those oysters are safe to harvest. We still put them through a depuration process anyway, but if there's a huge amount of E. coli in the water on the harvesting beds, we'd be shut down and we wouldn't even be allowed to harvest them. Part of my involvement with trying to combat pollution around the UK is to make sure it doesn't happen here. So last week you gave evidence at the High Court uh, challenging the government's plans to tackle sewage pollution, which includes a deadline of all raw sewage discharges are stopping by 2050. Can you tell me what the aims of the case are and what issues you have with the plans? 
Well, the Good Law Project asked me if I'd be interested to get involved in regards to challenging the government over their plans to try and stop discharges of sewage into the seas by 2050 and whether I'd be interested in kind of challenge that time frame in regards to the fact that they think, rightly as I do, that 2050 is far too long and by 2050 <laughs> our, our seas might be completely and utterly destroyed by then. So the High Court case was basically saying we're going to take Secretary of State to court and challenge them to not only speed up their plans to try and improve water infrastructure but also do something about holding water companies to account for what they're doing. Basically saying to the government have some backbone and start doing something concrete to stop water companies from polluting our sea. I was a little bit nervous about getting involved with it at first because I thought if people are equating sewage and oysters in the same kind of subject they might start thinking well are his oysters polluted should I be wary of eating his product but then at the same time I thought well if people like us small businesses don't get involved then who will it's our livelihoods at stake it's our future it's my daughter who's two it's her future if she wants to be involved with it you know so my involvement was giving like on the ground evidence about what's happening for us and what was the government's line? Did, was the were they present during that hit that part of the hearing? I mean, the Secretary of State for Rural Affairs, I, I, she's kind of been a bit absent in general, anyway, and she certainly hasn't really been responding to anything about the case when she's been asked for comment. Do you have high hopes? Do you think it's going to be successful, and they'll have to rewrite their plans? Even if we lose, I think it might force government to have to do something about it because I think the biggest thing, and this is where they're they're most concerned, let's face it, it's not about the environment, it's about how they're doing in the polls and whether they're going to have a chance of staying in power in the next election. So I think they're seeing that there's a massive public outcry. So I think this case alone, even if we don't win, is forcing government's hand to do something because they can see that the public have had enough. If it means we've actually forced government to change legislation, then then obviously amazing. But I'm pretty cynical about much changing in regards to their approach. But if it means that at least they're scared into doing something, then that, that for me is a win. Well, we'll be watching the case with interest. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Now, if you've not heard of our next guest, here's a reminder of some of his greatest music hits. Yes, it's the musician turned water activist Fergal Sharkey, who, full disclosure, is on our advisory board. You, of course, started your eminent career as a musician in the 1970s as the lead singer of the punk band The Undertones, then later went on to a very successful international solo singing career in the 1980s and 90s. But, I mean, were you always secretly an environmentalist? As obviously now you are you know, the number one kind of rivers activist in the UK. <laughs> Stop that. <laughs> yeah, I like the way you segued those two things together. <laughs> number one records with number one environmentalist. I dispute the latter claim, of course, as you'll understand. Um, I listen. The simple truth is, if even five years ago, someone had suggested to me that my name and some kind of sentence involving the words activism and environment were going to be used... I would have just kind of completely laughed in your face and thought it complete nonsense. Truth is, I got into this simply through my passion and love for fly fishing. 
and invariably that takes me and has meant I've spent far too many hours of my life standing on the banks of and standing in rivers, trying foolishly, desperately, uh, incompetently trying to catch salmonoids of a number of species. And that brought me directly into contact with the degradation, the decline and slow death of rivers in this country. Quickly, I discovered that this country is peppered with tens, if not hundreds, of little community groups. The River Vare Society, the River Chess Association, the Friends of the River Rib, just decent local people, which in some cases have known for decades that their river was ill. Now, they're not hydrologists, entomologists, biodiversity these are just decent, ordinary, normal people who have noticed a decline and a change in their river. There are people who will write letters to the local MP. There are people who will stand outside supermarkets collecting petitions. And they put their faith and trust in the system in the shape of the environment agency and government would do the right thing by them. It turns out the system actually took that trust and trashed it. And that made me really quite angry. And that's what ultimately got me focused. How much raw sewage gets dumped into UK um, waters, both in the rivers and the seas, like annually? Over the last three years, we now know it's been over 7.5 million hours worth. Thames Water, as we know, is on the brink of collapse. It's under discussion about whether to take it part private temporarily or yeah. whether its major investors are actually going to back them and it's going to be okay but it's really unclear about what's going to happen can you um, talk us through how we got to this situation it is a catastrophic failure of regulation there is absolutely no other way to describe it the regulator has now owned up water companies have a statutory obligation to build operate and maintain sewage systems capable of effectively dealing with the content of those sewers now the plain english version is if it gets into the sewer, it doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter how it's got there. It's the water company's legal obligation is to treat it properly and take care of it, not just dump it into the nearest river. The second layer, the regulators also now owned up. We as bill payers and customers have provided the water companies with all of the money they've ever needed for 30 years to meet that legal obligation something water companies have to certify to the regulator every single year. Well, quite clearly they weren't doing it. And the question becomes, what happened to money? Well, we know what happened to money. They've made off with £72 billion worth of our money, some of which should have clearly gone into building, maintaining and upgrading the sewage system. Well, it clearly hasn't happened. So that's left a situation where the infrastructure simply can't cope. They now, as we now know, on average, spend somewhere in the region of about two and a half, two point six million hours a year dumping sewage into the environment. It is fundamentally the water industry, the second largest polluter of rivers in the country. And all of that happened and the regulators sat back knowingly and in my opinion, willfully allowed it to happen. So if you're saying that the regulators willfully were not doing their, their job, is that on ministerial pressure or why would they be happy to let the water um, companies get away with it? Well you see there's the interesting little thing that has to be untangled because both the Environment Agency and Ofwat have to take into account the statutory guidance issued by the government. 
So the government does issue some set of instructions providing a steer and a sense of direction the government would like the regulatory system to take and how they would like it enforced. And my argument would be that there was an underlying direction there of deregulation and light touch regulation. Is it also the the way that these regulated industries have been set up in the first place? So the financing model incentivizes the water company to take on loads of debt because the debt repayments are paid by the bill payers. Completely, but again, the in the case of Thames, funnily enough, is a rather brilliant example of the whole thing. If you have a look at this nest egg and this little viper's nest mm. of various interlocking holding companies, subsidiaries, sister brother organisations that Thames Water has, there is three of them that they refer to as the regulated business. Now, that's the water company itself and a couple of little companies. Now, what the regulator agreed, clearly at some point in history, was that there was only a small corner of this quite complex corporate structure that actually off what? As the regulator had only any oversight of and therefore any control of. The rest of it is all off the balance sheet and all off outside the regulated business and I'm using their language and that's where all the financial engineering and all the debt and all the interest payments went on. So at some point, off what, in my opinion, made a very clear conscious concession to Thames Water and its owners, Macquarie, that they actually only were allowed to regulate a small part of the overall corporate structure. The minute they did that, they just gave the whole game away. Now, people talk about Thames Water at the minute as part of its drive in the collapse, being £14 billion of debt where if you go through that structure, outside the regulated business, you will come across a company called Kemble Water Finance Limited. And if you have a look on their balance sheet, they're carrying £21.7 billion worth of debt. The whole system was a shambles. The regulator could, and I would argue, actually has a legal duty to deal with it and ensure that that didn't happen. And again, in my opinion, they've failed in that obligation. Is this coming from some sort of ideological perspective that, you know, off what wants to keep its, you know, hands off the the Conservative government wants a wants a light touch over kind of industry? Or maybe, you know, off what and regulators and, and the government don't have the strength to resist these kind of powerful multinational um, organizations. Well, listen, they certainly have the legal authority. All of the power is outlined and contained in the Water Industries Act 1991. The Secretary of State has the power today to order water companies to do exactly what she wants them to do. And that includes how much they pay their chief executive, how much they pay their shareholders, how much they pay down in debt and how much they go and invest into the network. It's a little simple mechanism called an enforcement order and it takes nothing more than a stroke of a pen. And if water companies fail to comply, off what and the government then have the power to fine water companies up to 10% of their annual turnover to help focus their attention on what they should be doing. You are right. There was my personal interpretation, political direction to ensure that the price to the consumer was kept as low as possible. That was accelerated in 2015 
when Liz Truss became Secretary of State. And that, you will remember, ran in parallel with the complete decimation of the Environment Agency's environment budget and the Environment Agency's ability to monitor water quality, to do testing, to actually have the people on the ground that could do the work, to take enforcement action and carry out their functions as a regulator. You simply cannot take 57% of a budget away from any organisation and again, not deliberately, blatantly set out to decapitate it and cripple it. So there was, for me, a clear dogma. And particularly, going back to the water quality, I noticed the Environment Agency gave evidence to House of Lords Committee the other day and they touched upon, as a matter of celebration, that last year they had conducted inspections on 4,000 farms. Well, I can rewind back to the same Liz Trust in 2015, boasting two MPs on the floor of the House of Commons that as the Secretary of State for the Environment, she had cut farm inspections that year by 34,000. And here we are seven years later in the EA trying to celebrate it that it's now gone up to just over 4,000. Well, my maths, there's another 30,000 farm inspections missing out there. It was driven by this almost dogmatic belief in the Chicago School of Economics, Frederick von Mayek, that regulations distort the operation of free markets and therefore by inference regulations are bad things and we have to get rid of them. Well, guess what? When you do that, as we discovered when the same lady became Prime Minister, that cost the country tens of billions of pounds in the bonds market and our pension funds and it's now made a substantial contribution to basically crippling and poisoning every river in the country. That's what happens when you deregulate. We, you spoke at the Opposition Labour Party's conference last year. Yeah. What's their policy? Is it going to be better? Are they going to you know, enforce regulation more? Well, I don't know, because you know, I'm not the Labour Party. <laughs> and, uh, so far as I'm aware, they've not made a pronouncement yet as to exactly what their position is going to be. From the conversations I personally have had with members of the Labour Party, Yes, they know it's an issue. Yes, they know it is one that has to be addressed. Uh, Yes, there are clearly discussions accelerated over the last few days about the ownership structure of water companies. So a recent YouGov poll, as you may be aware, indicated that 69% of voters think the water industry should now be renationalised. That's a big thing for any political party to ignore that basically 70% of voters are telling you what they would like to see happen. What are some of those pros and cons of renationalising the water companies? Do you think it's a good idea? All of it is nothing more than time-wasting smokescreen and mirrors. Because the real issue actually is, according to the National Infrastructure Commission, because of the same lack of investment, London is now going to need something like £20 billion investment in infrastructure over the next 30 years simply to keep the taps turned on in London. Water companies are £64 billion in debt. We know it's going to cost tens of billions to fix the sewage system. The amount is open to discussion, but we'll all agree it's going to be a lot of money. So round numbers off the back of a fag packet simply to sort 
the water industry out without changing ownership at all is going to take the sharp end of probably getting on for 70, 80, 90, maybe even a billion pounds on a bad day. That's what we should be focusing in on. Where's that money coming from? Who's going to be paying for it? But I mean, I mean, sorry, the pros and cons of renationalising because it's like, you know, where will we get the money? Will it be, you know, do we well, have to renationalise? Uh, well, OK, I'll give you a viewpoint right now. It's not black and white and there's a thousand shades of grey. One of the other extraordinary things, and uh, I, I have no doubt you guys have had similar experiences in your journey over the last few years. I've had any number of what I refer to as WTF days, shall we say. One of which was the day I realised that water companies are issued operating licences by government. There's no time limit on those licences. They're indefinite. And if the government decides it wants to revoke a water company's operating licence, the water company has to be given 25 years' notice. So if you want to revoke my license and nationalise me as an industry, we're due 25 years' notice. In very round numbers, we make about two, two and a half billion pounds a year. Well, you know what, off the top of my head, we'll call that 60 billion pounds worth of profit. You now owe me because you're going to deprive me of it. The companies are also, for round numbers, 60 billion pounds in debt. Well, if you think I'm going to write off that debt, you've completely lost your mind. So there's your opening gambit. I'm looking for £120 billion in compensation. And if you were the political party that happened to win the next election, how do you explain to that nurse that's looking for a pay rise that you just spent £120 billion of the public's money and you paid it to those thieving bastards from the water companies? Well, guess what? You're not going there. And that's before the fact that the state the economy is currently in. I'm not sure any government could remotely afford to compensate the water industry for anything even looks like a hundred or 120 billion pounds. So there's one opening, one viewpoint right there. Uh, so this is Thames Water we'd be talking about and sort of the water sector more generally. Macquarie, who you mentioned earlier, has now, since about 2021, a majority stake in Southern Water. Yeah. It used to have a majority stake in Kemble, which owned Thames. Are we going to see the same thing happening to Southern Water and the rest uh, of them? I think uh, Southern Water already has been uh, was there not some discussion about another half billion pounds worth of equity having to be put into Southern Water. As we speak, there are four other companies, I believe, on off what's current finance watch list that have their credit ratings been downgraded over the last 12 months. Yeah. So the truth is, is a systemic problem simply through the way the industry has structured itself over the last 30 years so if anybody thinks that this discussion stops with Thames Water they're really badly mistaken there's at least four other companies involved in that and there are a number like Southern that clearly could get themselves into some difficulty quite quickly with nothing more than another one percent rise in inflation and or interest rates Mm. it's all over can't government then change the system or structure of ownership, whether that's renationalization or something else? Because otherwise you're going to have the bill payer picking up the tab, whatever the cost. Well, Leanna, this for me is the underlying point. It's now got to the stage that the ownership structure is actually a bit of a red herring. Because regardless of what now happens, these companies are going to have to have a bailout of some sort. If they stay in private ownership, the question becomes how far are the markets going to be prepared to put more money into those companies? 
knowing that they can't service the level of debt they've already got. So the truth is, for me, I suspect either the state is going to have to intervene, at least in the short term, one way or another, or a combination of bills going up. But I can, at this point in time, do not see the markets sustaining the debt and the investment that's going to be needed to rectify London's water supply, to rectify the sewage system, to rectify and deal with the level of debt in those companies one way or another, either through direct taxes or bills. The public is going to have to bear a large burden of all of this. I think what we need to be careful with, and governments may want to think of, what an outrage it will be if we allow the shareholders and the owners to walk away without carrying some of that pain and some of that burden that we as bill payers do not need in our lives right now. People have gone enough through enough financial pain over the last 10 years. Do you see this becoming a voting issue in the next general election? Oh, it already is. <laughs> it clearly featured highly during the local elections. According to the National Audit Office, who poll these things, uh, appoints hitting uh, number three in the things of most concern to people, the population of the United Kingdom. The last YouGov poll from three weeks ago, 69% of people felt that water companies should be renationalised. Polling that... Uh, River Action did about a month ago, six weeks ago. Basically, 50% of voters felt it would very clearly influence how they voted at the next election. Is it an issue? Yes, it is. And have I every intention of doing everything that I can in whatever minor, insignificant way that I can influence these things? I've clearly decided I'm going to devote myself to ensuring that it's still there come the next election. And of course, it's a bigger problem than just the water companies. I mean, you look at the record hot June that we've just had. They've been blamed for all the cases of dead fish that we're seeing across the country. Clearly, heat is a major factor. And um, um, well, it, well, it is, but I also think it's incredibly disingenuous of the Environment Agency to be trying to focus it solely and exclusively on heat. These rivers were massively stressed to begin with. It is simply a few hot days have tipped them over the edge and they've now fallen into that abyss. That is disregarding and overlooking the 30 years of incompetence on behalf of the Environment Agency and the 70, 80, 90% of the situation that they helped create in the first place before it started getting warm in June. Yeah, you would imagine that the rivers would be a little bit more resilient to the climate crisis if they weren't already over-abstracted and, and full of pollutants, perhaps. There you go. It's a very simple idea. You over-abstract them, you, by definition, you will increase the dissolved levels of pollutants within those rivers, and that away just tips those rivers over the balance anyway. I say, so given everything that we've been, we've been talking about, it seems like an utter shambles. Um, but what would be your message to Environment Secretary Therese Coffey? Uh, what's the one thing that you think she needs to get done? Um, or just the general message that she needs to land in her brain and act on? Well, listen, I, and again, I'm not trying to make a party political broadcast on behalf of anybody, but I think this particular administration have proved themselves unwilling and uh, simply completely disrespectful and actually disinterested in the environment. I was very taken by a Zach Goldsmith's resignation letter the other day where he was clearly quite happy to point the finger straight at the Prime Minister and his level of disinterest. 
So I don't think there's any point at this stage in offering any advice whatsoever to the likes of Teresa Coffey and uh, Rishi Sunak. They don't care, so it's fine. What I would say to a new administration, should there be one, DEFRA has been historically a posting you give someone to someone who's on the way up or someone who's on the way down. I think following the next election, the scale of what DEFRA is going to have to be grappling with is going to make it one of the most significant, important jobs in Whitehall. We have London run out of water. We have every river in the country that's now polluted because of farming and the water industry. And in the middle of all of that, you have climate change to contend with and you have two massive communities, one in the west of the country in the dairy community, who, in my opinion, are running unsustainable businesses. The size of dairy herds and their impact in the West Country is unsustainable. And in the east of the country, we have people growing 50% of the UK's potato crop in the driest area of the country. It is a lifestyle that is unsustainable. So you're going to have to now, from a government perspective, transition to communities both in the west and the east of England onto some other form of footing and some other form of industry otherwise you will utterly devastate those communities over the next 10 15 20 years now tell me you want to give the job to the man or woman that's going to be overseeing all of that to somebody who basically doesn't care and they're just on the way up or on the way down definitely yeah. going to be where all the action is for the next 10 or 15 years yeah there is a lot to be done but what about the ordinary people what can people who aren't in positions of power, who are getting very, very angry about everything that they're seeing in the um, news around this. What can they, what can they we do? See, I, did, I was just a bloke standing in my backyard howling at the moon at three o'clock in the morning <laughs> and waving my fist at the stars. Everybody has a part to play and everybody can make some sort of progress, no matter how large or small. And my simple thing is, we live in a democracy. In the next 12 months, we will go through a general election so if you were that driven and motivated, get together with a few of your neighbours. Please make sure at the local election, every single person standing as a candidate wanting to be elected in your constituency, please make sure they're all held to account, that they're all made specifically clear what you as a voter expect of them and make it sure if they are not prepared to stand up and be held accountable and resolve all of these issues, then they will never ever be elected an MP in your constituency and you will stand outside the local supermarket and wave a fist and shout at the moon and do everything you can to make that happen. Does that involve the kind of actions that, that are making Just Stop Oil and Extinction Rebellion unpopular? I mean, if, if what you've described doesn't work, would you sort of support that kind of more extreme direct action? Well, you know, invariably I go back to, and maybe it's my own upbringing, but uh, I go back to a culture where uh, my own family stood in the middle of the street on October of uh, 1969 and got beaten over the head by the police with truncheons. I'm the wrong man to be having that conversation with. It's very simple. Most people are prepared and happy and content to sit down and have a grown-up adult conversation to outline the issues, come up with a resolution and implement it together. But I totally understand and respect when people do not get an equally grown-up sympathetic response, how they feel they have no other alternative. And I know I'm going to get a motive about it. <sighs> Women in this country would not have the right to vote had that not happened. And people in the hometown where I grew up 
where Catholics did not have the right to vote in the 1960s, they would not have attained that right either without taking some form of direct action. Now, by the way, I'm much happier just to sit down and resolve this like a bunch of grown-ups. But when you have a government where the senior minister for the environment has just resigned, pointing the finger at the prime minister, accusing them of his disinterest, well, what option do you leave people? Fergal Sharkey, thank you very much for joining us. Since recording the interview, Thameswater announced that shareholders have agreed to provide a further £750 million of equity funding. Thameswater refutes the idea that the company is on the brink of collapse. They say they're committed to improve performance and outcomes for customers, reduce leakage and to improve river health. A spokesperson for Macquarie Asset Management told us that following their 1.1 billion equity injection in 2021, they're committed to ensuring Southern Water has the resources it needs to continue to improve its operational and environmental performance as part of its turnaround plan. They also pointed out to us that on Friday the 7th of July 2023, Southern Water announced that Macquarie Asset Management and potentially other shareholders expect to inject a further £550 million into Southern Water and that will enable the water company to increase its investment in its network to £3 billion over the current regulatory period. That's what they told us. They also wanted to make it clear that they were the majority owner of Thames Water between 2006 and 2017. Thames Water is now, of course, owned by a consortium of investors from Canada, the UK, Abu Dhabi, China and Australia. Mm-hmm.